Welcome to the Amazon Legends podcast, where we have real stories about making it big on Amazon. Our guests are CEOs of large companies and entrepreneurs who became powerful sellers, also experts specializing in helping sellers, and both former and current Amazon employees who will give us an insight from behind the scenes. Here's your host, Nick Urison. Welcome to another episode of Amazon Legends. And my next guest today is a former Amazonian. I can't wait to talk to him. And you would never believe what this guy did. He was the business lead in developing the Seller Central platform that everybody today is using. So so I'm getting my firing squad ready, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> want to do the same thing. So he's worked in many other companies such as Microsoft, Disney, Nokia, EA, and Hasbro. He's the founder and CEO of Product Labs, which is a full-service Amazon agency, and also part of the executive team at Brandless, which is an aggregator. So he's the proud father of five kids. So everybody meet my guest, Brad Moss. Welcome to the show, Brad. Hey, thank you. Thanks, thanks for having me here. Excited to be here. Uh, I, I've been waiting for this uh, <laughs> a long time. Getting so, ready for the firing squad. That's uh, right. Yeah, firing squad. So, uh, so you love something most people, if not all, dislike immensely. So tell us, what is that, Brad? Uh, I love chaos. Oh, that's, that's the chaos that Amazon creates. <laughs> <laughs> I've had to learn to appreciate it. Soak it in and I love it. So, but, you know, I mean, of course... You know Amazon. You know Amazon. We are, we know Amazon. It, it's there's always it, it's never a dull day. Uh, things are always changing. So sometimes it does lead to chaos. But give us yeah, the typical Amazon approach, which is always methodical. How to handle chaos and how do you actually turn that into an opportunity? Yeah. Um, okay. So. When I was at Amazon, essentially, I would consider my role as I was in the business of building businesses. That's what I did. I was building businesses and, and, and company, well, micro companies inside of Amazon. And they have, a great, they have a great approach where it's like, hey, if there's too much data and too much chaos, you have to make, make sense of it. And so I really learned to appreciate um, what Amazon used to call, what they call tenets, right? So foundational principles for any business, anything that you're running or operating, because with the right tenets, you can build, it will keep your vision straight and it'll organize all of your data. So you can actually make sense of the chaos. So give us some examples. So, okay. So high level example, Amazon is built on three principles. One, uh, Bezos said, hey, first tenet, is people will want things cheaper, right? Then people will want things faster. Uh, and then what people will want just more, more things <laughs> or more options of things, right? So if we look at those three principles, the first one, uh, Amazon says people will always want things cheaper. That is the entire reason that Amazon retail exists, the Amazon vendor side exists of Amazon because they can control the price point and they can pull it down and make sure that they get things cheaper uh, for people. Uh, so they'll come to Amazon, right? The second one, the reason people always want things faster, and you got to think even 10 years ago, is the reason FBA exists. All of Amazon's logistics system is all because of the core principle that people want things faster. 
And the third one that people want more things uh, is and more variety is the entire reason that seller exists. The third party seller exists because Amazon knows, um, even though they're not humble many times, but they're at least humble enough to recognize they will not have all the products in the world. Right. Uh, but they were bold enough to say, hey, we're the everything store. So let's how do we get everything on here? We got to create this third party program so that people can can uh, give the best variety of, of product available to consumers. So those three tenants basically built these massive pieces of Amazon, as you can see. So how, and put those three tenants into context in terms of handling chaos. So, I mean, the chaos is, I mean, people are coming out saying e-commerce, e-commerce, what is this, right? And if you remember the early days, Overstock, um, which is actually locally here in, in Salt Lake City, they were they did they were doing just as so much as Amazon was online and Amazon was everyone was just like early days how do we do this and Amazon created these tenets of uh, or Bezos did of these long term futures looking at hey what are the principles that will be true um, in the long run that we're just going to build our business around and so with that they went after these three things I mean who was investing in in uh, in warehouses back then right and who was and how robust was the third-party um, selling pro programs? I mean, you had eBay back then, right? Which was much bigger than Amazon uh, selling online. But Amazon um, was able to use it, this tenant, and they came at the third-party selling at a kind of a different direction. And we could we don't need to talk about that too much, but um, they used it to create this structure. And so when I'm looking at, so when I created the the mobile seller app. Um, which hopefully people use. I love to hear it when they do use it because that was really painful to get through Amazon. I had like 76 different iterations of this business plan just to get funding for uh, like three or four developers to, to build this the, the seller app that hopefully people are using on their phones. Um, it, was, it was a question of like, hey, uh, what do we do with mobile? And it was that way for four years before I got there. Uh, and they had tried to start the program three or four times and and no one had created, I guess, the right kind of principles that they would go after. Um, and so the tenets that um, we, we set the system around was that mobile, the mobile use case is based. So again, it's chaos. Like, what am I going to use my phone for? How am I going to create this business case? How am I going to create a streamline of, of what people should be doing? Um and they're and how they perform or, or use this system, and uh, and so doing. I did a ton of research into like, hey, why do people use mobile devices, and what is our what are our tenants going to be on this thing? And I realized that people, uh, at least this is the you know, I'm sure there's other ones and people much smarter than than, than myself could come up with um, probably more sophisticated tenants, but the ones that I laid out there and that got this over the finish line <laughs> to start getting developed at Amazon was that people use their mobile phones um, for uh, three main things. One is they use it for um, uh, instant, uh, really quick notifications, right? You have it on you. So you use it for a notic notification system, right? Obviously it's a phone, it's a text machine. So people use it for that. People use it uh, for location agnostic uh, things. So meaning uh, they would use it as a tool to go scan something, or they could use it, uh, you know, you bring your phone with you and um, it doesn't matter where you are. Back in the day, I used to have to go to a printer 
or bring my computer and to go print something. Now I can have it on my phone and, and go send it to a printer, right? So it's it, it creates this agnostic piece of, of where you are. And then the last one, the last principle, and I'm not saying this as eloquent as I did in the paper, so apologies. But then the last principle was that people use their phone when they're bored, right? They use it to fill their time. It's like, hey, it's a time filler. I'm on the subway. Uh, I, I just want to check the news. I want to do something, right? Or I want to play a game or I want to contact someone's social media. So communication device um, and uh, and time filler and, and then location agnostic. And with those three things, I actually built the three big features we launched with was the first one was uh, buyer-seller messaging because you can't do buyer-seller message. There's no APIs for buyer-seller messaging inside of Amazon. And so that was like one of the biggest features inside <clears throat> of the mobile app was that, Hey, we can, sellers can now on the go respond to messages and they get them instantly and they go. Um, the second one was, uh, we, we had a scanning and upload. This was early days, not, uh, when we were as heavy into the brand, but people were doing a lot of arbitrage selling and they were scanning barcodes. They were going to Costco, going to Sam's club. They're scanning a product and be like, Hey, I can sell that for cheaper on Amazon. Um, we built that functionality into the app where you could just list, scan a UPC and list it in your app within, within seconds. So that was the location agnostic principle. And then the last one is people are bored is we put the dashboard in there, check out your sales, right? And that's what everyone loves to do. There's no productivity there, but you're, uh, but you are um, at least no, no overt productivity, but at least you're looking at your sales and, and you, when you're bored, you're like, Hey, how many did I sell today? I mean, I'm sure a bunch of people in the app, Especially when you start selling, you're like, oh, and you refresh, like I sold another one. Refresh, I sold three more, right? It's kind of fun and a little addicting um, to do that. But that was the reason for those three features. And that's what helped get us over the line to actually get the development and, and launch the whole thing. When, it, But the chaos, um, take a step back, it may seem simple when I lay it out like that, but the chaos is we had 250 uh different systems inside of seller central and it's like we can't put all these into the app um we have you know manager listings right why wouldn't we do that on the mobile app manager orders why can't we do that on the mobile app these things were big and there's a lot of really big systems and we had to whittle it down and create a core use case that would launch you know it was the first version mvp <coughs> that would help launch the product so that that would that everyone would want to use and they'd stick around and, and you know, the, how sticky it was for people was a, uh, one of the key metrics we tracked. Um, and, uh, and so we took the chaos of everything and just kind of streamlined it with these core principles. And we launched with those three and it was, it was awesome. I mean, that was, it was a big success, you know, uh, and uh, inside of Amazon, everyone's like, oh, Brad's the mobile guy. And, and we start, and then, and then all of a sudden other people are like, I want to be the mobile guy too. And <laughs> Oh yeah. And I mean, starts I, growing. I, <laughs> you know, everything you're telling me reminded me of two things. Uh, first of all, I had a gentleman uh, by the name of Adrian Chernoff. He was a guest, one of my earlier guests, but he was an inventor, but he designed, he, he had the patent for uh, and, uh, GM. They built something and uh, I don't remember now, but it was all about building disruptive technology. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you don't sit down and say, okay, let's build disruptive technology. Let's start here, right? So it doesn't work that way. Uh, so 
he laid out step-by-step -step methodology of how to think creatively mm. in order to build disruptive technology. So for, for you and anybody else who is interested in actually building from scratch, creative uh, building uh, disruptive technology or anything disruptive, listen to his episode, Adrian yeah. Chernoff. It's unbelievable. And you just laid out how to leverage chaos uh, actually to focus on things. But you know what I heard? Every company has to lay down those core principles. So if you don't have them in the first place, where do you start, right? Then you really have chaos, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You do. You do. And we would, you know, it was a great practice. Amazon had some really great practices. Um, there's things I loved about the company and things I uh, was happy to not um, be part of anymore. But one of the, the things that I loved was some of these principles and every new program that would launch, you know, you've heard of the thinking backwards kind of thing. We would do press releases before a product was ever launched. It's like, hey, what what would the press release look like before the product? So tell us about that, because that's a business methodology. So uh, what I read is Amazon does not, uh, nobody at Amazon does PowerPoint. So you have no. this press release method. So tell us about that press release method. Yeah. Um, so uh, it was like it's a floating principle, right? No one like demanded that you had to do a press release. But for people like me, where we are developing new technologies, new businesses inside of Amazon, we're taking old businesses and refreshing them. That's what I tried to do with Seller Sensor, by the way. And we can talk about that <laughs> as well. But, but um, so when you're developing new things, like you had to get a whole group of people to understand what you wanted to do, right? And it's kind of in your head. But you had to put it down on paper. And so even if it's a great idea by saying, hey, I'm going to create this new online network where uh, people can talk to each other. It's like, okay, well, what are that's the same as a bunch of forums, right? And, and you're like, no, where they have faster interactions. You're like, well, what do you mean, right? So then you could, you would actually go through a press release. Um, and, uh, you know, this is a dated, dated example, but you go through a press release and you explain what, kind of what Facebook is, right? Like that's, that's what I mean, right? I don't mean online interactions or, or when Twitter came out, it's like, hey, people have to limit their, you know, their responses. Well, what are the use cases? So you create this press release of like, what are the key benefits of whatever this thing is that you have in your mind? But it's, it's not even as much for everyone else around you. It's to help the creator or the um, inventor of this or, or the group who's inventing this refine their vision to be really specific and so the idea of the press release was, hey, I'm going to put out, I'm not a PR person, and they had a few template press releases. So you don't have to make it over the top, but it's, it's really a practice, figure out exactly what you're launching and what are the customer benefits and why they're excited about it, right? So you can't just say, hey, I'm doing this technology, like that's it. A press release, you're making people excited about what you're doing, right? You're launching this press release. And so when you're envisioning this software, many times, um, or this new process, Many times you're thinking through like, well, no, who's going to be excited about that? Like, no one's going to be excited about that. So you actually catch yourself on some of your thoughts and your preconceived thoughts of why it was great or why you thought it was great. And, um, and it makes you just challenge yourself because creativity loves constraints, to be honest, right? I've been in creative space my whole life um, in one degree or another. And when you have constraints, it actually spins up more creativity or better creativity. It refines the, you know, it refines the, the, uh, the mineral um, or the idea to something better. Yeah. So it, it's 
you know, one of my favorite sayings is, is by Mark Twain. He said, I was going to send you a short note, but I didn't have time. So I sent you a long one. So, <laughs> yes, I love that. So, so that's what you're talking about. So you are talking about making a concise delivery of what it is that you're trying to do. Yeah. And, and that way specific. That's right. And, and, and on that note, like that's the reason I learned to really appreciate um, writing at Amazon. So I love that there was no PowerPoint. There was no PowerPoint at all. Like you said, in, in the company, it was all written down business cases, responses. And it wasn't just, um, you know, the press release. It was anything we did in a meeting. It was all written down. And one of the, the benefits is that trained me just doing that process that helped train me be really precise and concise about the things that I'm saying and, and doing. So um, there, there's this whole process about writing at Amazon inside of Amazon. And there's these things they call weasel words, right? And like all these like little, little details, like, but a weasel word is something like putting in the word very or a lot. Like you can't put that. You have to be this, this, this happened or this uh, grew by the, these numbers. And this was the result. Like everything is really concise and specific, but when you learn the, it's like a new language kind of, but when you learn it, you can be super concise about everything you're doing and you can just cut through all the BS and you can be, and you know exactly what you're doing, what you're saying. And like the discussions that come out of that, I worked with some of the smartest people in the whole world when I was at Amazon, at least if, from my interactions, I haven't met, you know, um, you know, uh, a lot of people, but there at Amazon, I was working with some of the smartest people, um, I've ever interacted with. And we had some of the best discussions because the, the way we had to prepare the, the data and the information. Yeah. Um, so was- I, I always tell my clients, you know, with, with Amazon, first of all, you guys speak a totally different language. So I, I had another Amazonian and, uh, you know, I told her, I said, you know, you, your language is like she's talking about, uh, she said first party. So everybody knows third party. Everybody knows third party self. Yeah. And, and then she said first party. I said, by first party, you're talking about Amazon being the seller. So she says, yeah. So nobody calls first party. <laughs> well, we did it inside of Amazon. Who, who is the second party? Who's the second one? I mean, there's no say. So it's like, you know, there's this show the other day I was watching. So there is like, a, it's the word whelmed. So you are either overwhelmed or underwhelmed, but you're never whelmed, right? <laughs> it's like you had third party. Now you guys also refer to I mean, first, party. first party. But who's the second party? It doesn't. Yeah, that's right. There's all these different languages. But this is what I learned. And I always tell every client of mine. Language is key with Amazon. In your interactions, do not have knee-jerk reactions. Do not have knee-jerk messages. Do not ask questions. When they tell you to do something, do not push back and ask questions because they're going to tell you. You're supposed to know the answer to that. Uh, But most important, I always tell everyone, you need to learn how to read between the lines because they will not tell you things directly. Yeah, well, the customer service side, yeah, there's certain restrictions that are the seller services. They just can't, um, yeah, they can't divulge. uh, So that brings me to my my question that everybody is, I'm sure, dying to to know is we understand Amazon's customer-first culture. Best customer experience. I have a blog article written about 
interpreting best customer experience. What does that mean? How does it translate into policy? So we understand that. But why is it that sellers are guilty before proven innocent? Yep. So um, you actually all can, uh, anyone who's been a seller can come over to our side for a minute of being an Amazon employee. So when you put something first, that means other things have to go second, second or third or fourth, right? And so when it's customer first, that means that is in lieu of putting the, the sellers first. And so as a seller, you feel that uh, when Amazon pushes you around or kind of demands some, at least you're feeling they're pushing you around or demanding things from you, they're, they're hyper-focused on making it the best customer experience possible, right? And so when they push you around, it's because they're trying to align your behavior or maybe not yours, but other people's behavior into a program that makes it the best experience for the customer at the end of the day. As an employee, it's even worse. I mean, <laughs> well, while I was there, it was even more so that way, right? Where it's like, hey... Um, yeah, there were there were a lot of things that that we would uh, that Amazon we could tell Amazon loved the customers more than us uh, are as as employees, and there have been articles written about that and everything. That's fine, but but that's what that's why as a seller you're getting pushed around a bit uh, from time to time, and that's why um, it's it's all for the customer at the end of the day. Make sure customers are happy. Uh, a lot of people come on Amazon. They're doing direct to consumer. They're doing Amazon. They're like, hey our return rates are twice as high on Amazon than there are on our website, or, you know, maybe 50% more. It's like, well, it's because Amazon's trained people that it, they can return anything. And that's one of the reasons they go to Amazon, right? There's 200 million people who hit that site and are shopping every month in the U S. So, so that's where you should. Um, so that's why, that's why they go there. So you just got to expect that um, because it's a good customer experience. Uh, and, and Amazon's now training, you know, the entire, at least the U S population of like how to think about e-commerce in a certain way. And they're leading the way because they, they know that people who they've done all the analytics too, on all of these things. So it's like, Hey, if we offer free shipping or sorry, free returns or return window, like people are more willing to come back and, uh, they're going to do more in our store. Mm -hmm. And so all of this is all based on numbers and metrics as well. And so that's why at least. Uh, macro met metrics. So sometimes it's not as good for you from on a micro perspective. So the, the reason I asked that question is because a lot of people, for, I mean, first of all, you know how it is. When you hear from either seller performance team or something to do with policy violation or, or listing violation or whatever the case may be, it's, it's never pleasant. It's never pleasant. It's usually unexpected. So the immediate reaction is defensive. And, and, and you know how it's a crisis immediately, suddenly, you know, because it, it's directly related to cash flow. So cash flow is everything for a small business. So uh, it, it's always anger, starts with anger, right? So, and then you push back uh, until it's some time before you accept it. So what so for the listener's benefit, this principle of customer first, in the case of a seller receiving something that they don't like, their response always has to be from customer standpoint. Why is it that Amazon 
is doing this is wrong because it's going to hurt their customer. Right? Putting it in that perspective is always the right approach because that's what Amazon expecting. So, uh, what, what do you think about so, that? providing a response, saying that this, you know, I understand this is why we did this, but also your action is hurting the Amazon customer. Is that a sound approach or is it too wise ass or what do you think? No. So, um, and you can't just say this is hurting the customer. You have, you'd have to give specifics, right? So, but like you can go back and fight. You know, I've, we've dealt with thousands of cases, um, if not tens of thousands of cases with Amazon over the years. Um, and from the, I've dealt with them from the outside, <clears throat> you know, on behalf of our clients and, and other brands. And uh, you can go through and kind of fight them, right? And you're going to kind of get what you, what you dish out, where you're just going to go back and forth a lot and and it may take longer to fix it. But if, if to your point, if you want to fix this fast and fix it quickly, um, the best thing to do is to, is to look at it from the customer's perspective, exactly what you're saying, and say, okay, ignore myself and my pride of, of what I've done wrong. Let's look at it from a customer perspective. And then you try and say, you know, like there's many times, let me just, uh, an example of like maybe late shipment or something like that, right? And they, and they violate you for doing too many and whatever, and you write, and you should write back and say, "Hey, look, this is what we have done to fix our operation process, right? This is what we're doing. This is what we did before. So you totally fess up to everything you did wrong. This is what we were doing before, and it wasn't being checked, uh, you know, uh, every day. Now we're checking it two times a day, and they're going to be shipped out on this time. You know, very specifics, and this is this will create a better customer experience for the Amazon customer at the end of the day, right?" Um, and so you focus on the Amazon customer. When you try and catch Amazon and things that they are doing that are bad for their for their customers, um, it will usually fall on deaf ears because the folks that you're dealing with are not the folks that are going to change those systems inside of Amazon. Um, those the people you're typically dealing with with cases are folks who have a whole list of you know different. Um, automatic responses, right? They can go through, they have a list of, you know, 15 on this principle and they click the automatic response and they just send it back to you. That's why you get, you know, all the same responses all the time. Um, and if you say, and you make a good case, um, sometimes it gets through and that's fine. And that's, and that's good. Sometimes they'll elevate it, but many times it's, you might make a case and it just doesn't get past the, the customer service uh, agent who's dealing with it. Um, Cause they're not in a position and they're not empowered to be able to make whole system changes uh, of things. Now, many times there's a great, there are great reasons and some sellers have spent a lot of good time helping Amazon get better and they want to get better. There's a whole division. I actually have a, a good buddy I went to business school with and he's running it now um, where they're they're trying to make the seller experience better. And I, I just learned about this um, maybe six months ago, 12 months ago, and that they've kind of created this task force of making it, making sellers love selling on Amazon. And I don't know if there's sellers that you've talked to. And that's typically a question. Do you love selling on Amazon? And <laughs> what, are the, what are the responses you're going to get? <laughs> Probably. Well, so look, listen, I, I, I asked, so I'm going to ask you the same thing in the end, but I asked the same question on pretty much every episode to every guest. If you could change one thing in Amazon policies for third-party sellers, what would that be? So everybody, first of all, laughs. And so how many do you want? So there's so many. However, 
everybody that I speak to, without exception, they are very appreciative of Amazon, of what Amazon has done for small business, even though some people say Amazon kills small business. Yeah, it kills small business. But guess what? If Amazon is not going to kill, something else is going to kill. If you want to keep doing the same thing and never reinvent yourself, you're going to be dead, right? So Amazon just makes it much faster. So yeah, yeah, I, I don't, I don't care about that. So, so that's their response. They, they typically uh, complain about the quality of the support that they get because everything is canned and blah blah. It takes forever to get something mm-hmm. beats and blah blah. So, but tell us. What is the best way? Because I'm in that camp also, and I reported something that actually found a, a, a hole in the what Amazon people call website behavior. We can't do anything about its website behavior. Uh, so when you find something, what is the best place to go with the whole s- structural uh, improvement that is badly needed? That's a good question. So what they've done less of so back in the day there's used to be the jeff at um emails that you could send right those i'm sad those are gone essentially um they create a bigger division and we started getting more uh rude responses back when we were finding holes and issues and, and whatnot so those were those used to be a great mechanism uh, the Jeff, the Jeff escalations, we were like, we would deal with them inside of Amazon. One came down, like you had to resolve it within 24 hours. Like you stayed up all night just to figure out this response and send it back. Cause it would go to Jeff. Jeff would go to a VP. The VP would go down to the director and then it'd go to the program owner of whoever owned that business. Um, and you have to write a response and have to go up anyway. So that used to be the way they fixed the mechanisms, but uh, that's gotten, I don't know if people abused it or they got too big to handle it the right way but that doesn't seem to be effective anymore. Um, and uh, and I don't feel like I have a, a great answer for you aside from I've heard some people when they tweet at Amazon, they get some responses. So there's there's several ways of getting, there's, there's like the PR side that will sometimes get stuff and flag it and send it over to the teams that are working on stuff. But one of the things that Amazon doesn't do a great job at um, that is, is be... And they try in their own way, but um, I don't think they've solved it very well, or I don't think they've fully solved it. But th- they don't do a great job at being really connected with those who they're serving from a from a seller perspective or technology perspective. And it may just it may be a resource, maybe bandwidth thing, who knows? But um, being really connected with the sellers, I, I can tell you, I learned so much more about selling once I left Amazon than actually when I was running the whole system sure. inside of Amazon. Um, and I would try and interview people, but like the mechanisms weren't really there for getting the voice of the voice of the customer. Right. But voice of the seller <laughs> is, is what it kind of is, but they have, I mean, the good news is they've created some of these task forces inside of Amazon to help discover these problems. And those task forces are, um, they're partnering. They listen to some, some larger, they listen to some, some groups, right. Who are out there. And uh, when the groups have problems, they kind of listen to, to what's going on with them. Um, there's not really a personal contact that you can you can contact with all of your problems, right? But um, so it is, I guess my answer is that it, there isn't a great mechanism right now in place to help find these little holes. And believe me, like we've gone through the whole thing where Amazon restricted, you know, we're doing whatever. They're restricting 30,000 of sales um, a week on this on this program. 
it's like, oh, and we said, no, we don't fall into this or into this. And they're like, oh yeah, you're right. You you hit this use case we didn't think about when we created our policies, <laughs> right? Nice. So but that took us like six weeks for them to acknowledge and, and us to get to the right person to acknowledge that we hit a use case they didn't think about. And then we said, what's the resolution? They said, oh, we don't know. Like more or less, they said, oh, we don't have one yet. We'll put it on our, our roadmap for <laughs> for something in the future. So like, it wasn't a, you know, as a customer, it's a terrible response, especially when my money's um, tied up and in, in, uh, in, 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 in this whole thing. But they're trying, I mean, they're continually trying to get better. One of the good things is over the last, you know, eight, nine years that I've been doing this, uh, from the outside of Amazon perspective, is I've seen them go through. They they are steadily improving, right? We are always impatient. We live in a very quick response society, and so we we can be impatient with many parts of our lives. But a lot of things just are you got to be patient with, right? <laughs> Including governments. So Amazon is a slow. Uh, they're slowly getting better. I just continue to continually see them doing things that are getting better. It's just at a pace that. Um, and for such a large company, it's great. And they actually move faster than any large company that I know. Uh, but, um, but it is slower than, than what we would like. Um, so that getting better. Yeah. So right now you work with sellers and you understand the Amazon system. Uh, so give us some Amazon being a data centric company, give us some metrics to stay on top of. How do you, make a seller successful? What are some things that people need to intimately understand and, and go by? Yeah. Let, okay. So this is, uh, I'll go into a little bit of my philosophy here. So um, Amazon, so when I was in the business of building businesses, right? And then I left. Um, I actually went to another startup that I had started or, uh, years before in video games, which is super fun, but doesn't make any money. Um, <laughs> unless you're epic yeah. uh and then uh started developing this people started coming and say hey i need help with amazon and so i said okay if i'm gonna really help sellers with amazon what's the framework we need to put a framework in place because there could be any business of any size with any category what are the core tenets and the things we should focus on so we created a um uh essentially a framework that we use for all of our clients we have for you know eight years and it's really simple um again some of the best solutions are really simple but we look at from the top of the hierarchy we have it on our site somewhere but the top of the hierarchy it's what's your what are your profits is what you care about right profits is what you care about and then what makes up your profits it's your revenue minus your costs right so it's simple math and then uh most people don't want to worry about their costs. <laughs> they do sometimes, but there's a whole hierarchy down there. But when you're looking at driving your sales on a continual basis, like what are you doing? You typically, from a revenue perspective, your revenue is made up of your, your traffic and your conversion rate. Those two things, right? Conversion rate times traffic equals unit sales. That's simple. So when you're saying, hey, should I refresh my listing? Should I add this EBC content? Should I do A plus content? Blah, 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 right? This list is massive. And when I first, when we first started dissecting this, it was like, hey, here's a list of 150 things to do. Everyone's saying to do them all, do them all right now. That's chaos, right? That's, that's total chaos. So you can't deal with that. And I think the number one thing people struggle with, um, and there's plenty of people who get it right. Um, and sometimes you get it right on a short term and then it goes down. You're like, why? Um, but the, uh, 
one of the things that people struggle with is just the core, like just the meat and potatoes. What am I doing? Is my conversion rate healthy? Yes or no from where I want to be. And is, is my traffic healthy? Yes or no. Like it comes down to those two things. That's it. And so on the conversion rate, it's uh, really four big things. Um, you know, you can overthink this. Don't overthink it. There's four things that really make up your conversion rate. Your images, right? The, 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 the text content you have in there, uh, including your title, what your price is, right? And then what your reviews are. Um, and your reviews, you don't control directly, but your price, you can control up and down your text and the content you can control and your images you control. So if you change one of these things, uh, don't look at your sales, look at your conversion rate and see if it's going up or down after you change that. And if your conversion rate goes down and you did nothing, that means a competitor or someone else in the market actually is probably coming in and doing a better job of one of those, those three or four things, uh, than you are. Um, and so like that's core meat and potatoes, like every week, week to week, what's going on. That's your, if it's a conversion rate problem, look at those things. And there's lots of really cool, sophisticated things you can try and do with those. Um, uh, and the methodologies and everyone's got their own different philosophies, but really like that's the meat, right? That's the, the conversion rate. And then on the traffic, you have your paid, paid at your paid traffic, or we call influenced at traffic. And then you have your organic traffic. So all the SEO stuff. And you see complete podcasts and systems built on Amazon ranking and, and SEO stuff. And then you see tons of ad uh, platforms and people who are trying to run your ads for you on the ad side. But you got to combine it. You can't just have it separate. It's like, all it's just roll it up. What's your traffic? What's your conversion rate? And then what are you doing that are affecting those two things? If my traffic's going down, is it organic traffic or is it paid traffic? You got to know, right? Like you can't just say, oh, my traffic went down. You got to diagnose it. Um, and so I think from a, you know, without going <laughs> too deep into all this stuff, which I obviously I, I love it, I can go into more detail, but, um, it comes down to just those meat and potatoes and why are you doing the things you're doing, right? If I'm sending off Amazon traffic into Amazon, what is it doing? Why am I doing it? What is that going to mean in terms of my sales, right? Am I doing it just to get more traffic? And is that more cost-effective than doing inside Amazon ads or some other stuff inside of Amazon, uh, why am I doing changing my title, right? Is that, am I changing my title for my conversion rate or am I changing for Google SEO, which many people do, which is, which is, you know, not a bad idea at all. But um, at the end of the day, what, what's, what's it doing for your conversion rate? Is it going up and down? Are you getting the kind of traffic from it? Um, if you're doing it for a traffic reason, then what, what, what's the traffic? So, reason? So. Uh, I am so glad you mentioned the C word, the conversion, the conversion rate, because I tell people this, uh, that Amazon is a complex platform, but if you really want to dumb it down, there are two magic bullets for you to be constantly watching, staying on top of and improving. One is your click-through rate. How can you increase your click-through rate, which speaks to the traffic? So if you are targeting the wrong kind of keywords and then your listings are coming up with the wrong kind of keywords, again, people are not going to click through it. So, uh, or they may, you may be coming up in the right places, but people are not clicking and you have to figure out. So click, monitor the click-through rate based on which keywords. Uh, and the second one, and that's the most important one, is the conversion rate. So, uh, so it all goes back to doing the same thing with any, anything else. First, become aware of it. 
A lot of people don't even watch it. And frankly, Seller Central does not really provide this information in a very sophisticated way. They hide way. it. If that was, that, that's my number one thing. Make business reports, and I think they might. Make the business reports tab like an API yeah. access where you can get into it without going through and scraping. So now, here is the thing. Well, I mean, this is available, and this is available. And I ask every every client of mine, whenever they come on board, the first thing I do is get two years of business reports downloaded, and then I analyze it, and yeah. uh, and that's where you see. So, which is the key? Because just downloading your business reports, a business report once for a particular time frame is not enough. You need to look at it in perspective. So that means that. Any seller has to is expected to build this elaborate Excel files or Google Sheets or whatever, and then update it. So I remember in my old days when I was an Amazon seller, uh, I built these systems because I, you know, I'm a technology person. But they all needed updating, and every time I updated with every file I needed, I was exhausted to just look at the data. <laughs> and that's what the most important thing that you mentioned. Is that's how it how it can be used. So, uh, but that's what it is, conversion rate. So I, I'm glad you you mentioned it. So uh, tell us a little bit about uh, outside this. So there are some other things that Amazon favors, like A plus content, right? So is A plus con- what kind of a role does A plus content play in appearing in the search results? So. Let me ask you this, and there's a lot of, and this is what I would challenge. I challenge everyone who says Amazon loves dot, dot, dot. Amazon favors dot, dot, dot. Um, and what did we start with, right? We started with Amazon as a customer first company, consumer mm-hmm. first. So is it Amazon that loves that or is it the consumer that loves that? At the end of the day, they're going to do whatever they can to allow the consumer to make the choice. And they want to do whatever they can to surface the best information to the consumer at the end of the day. So I would say, I would think about the consumer first, right? In all of these, do consumers like A plus content better? Uh, if it's it's a, if it's crummy A plus content, no, right? Like you could do better with images than you can with other A plus content. If you're doing really crummy A plus content, the consumer's not going to respond to it. Right. Um, and Amazon at the end of the day is a selling machine. They just want to surface whatever's going to sell the most to their cus- cus- customers. And that's really what the whole search, it, search al- algorithm is based on what's going to sell the most. So when you're thinking of A plus content, think about it in the customer context, right? Of what is the customer going to want the most? There are some things we know, right? Like video actually improves some conversion to some degree. Right, video helps. Uh, people like to look at videos um, on their phones, obviously, with TikTok and all the other platforms. Um, and most, but you should also know that most people are looking at Amazon on their phones. Um, that's been that way for years, and I think sales now. Uh, it used to be people would view more on their mobile phones, but purchase more on desktop. Uh, I think the latest stats I heard is everything is uh, skewed more mobile, including sales. So sales and views all come from mobile first, and you should look at the detail page and detail pages change by every category. One of my other close business cool buddies, 
he runs the whole system, the whole detail page system inside of Amazon. And you should look at, by category, it changes, right? But looking on a mobile device, what's the content they're surfacing? And that's the most important because that's all based on numbers and data and analytics. So most of the, the KSB or the KSBs, what they would call KSBs, key selling benefits, the bullet points, most of those have now moved down, right? And it's mainly images first, images and price. Um, and then the, the little snippet of reviews. So, um, or the star rating. So when you're looking at your content, even though you're looking at desktop most of the time, because that's where you're optimizing it, look at it on mobile and see how see how it gets presented on mobile. Do you have so many people have duplicate images of like, hey, here's the product from this angle. Now here's it from just a slightly different angle. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> no, every image has to have a reason, a purpose. Uh, um, and there's actually, uh, we have principles that we uh, we use for our, for, our, for our images that we're providing for people. But that's the most important. What's up front? The first several images in the video, right? That's essentially the A plus piece. Then you can go down to your brand information a little bit lower. That increases, I would say that increases someone's like confidence in your brand. If it's like, especially when you're looking at a category and it changes, but if you're competing against other brands, look how you can do better uh, or present yourself your way for your brand um, versus how the other guys are presenting themselves for their brand. Um, and that EBC lower down in the page, right? Like it's good, but it's not shown up on the top on mobile. I tell you that, right? Like other stuff comes up first and look and pay the most attention to the stuff that comes up first because that's what matters the most to customers. Um, and I see people get really hyper-focused on things that it's like, just look at the end of the day of what Amazon's showing people first. And that is how you should prioritize it, whether it's got a name or not. So what I'm hearing is it doesn't play as much role in, in the search algorithm as it does on converting once they are on the product detail. So um, again, you take a step back, whatever is sells the most is going to show up the, at the top. So if you are, regar even regardless of conversion, if someone's hitting your page and then buying your product more than somebody else, which does eventually go down to conversion, but like that's the core principle, right? So when you're thinking about search optimization, it's like, well, really, who's going to click? What are people clicking on the most, right? And what are they buying at the most? And yes, it's proven. The reason Amazon pushes A plus content is there's better metrics for that. So, I mean, I guess you could go down and say, well, we're all going to do A plus content because it converts better. That's probably a, a true in general, that's a true statement, but for your product, I don't know, right? Like maybe yeah, exactly. I can, I've seen products without A plus um, at the very top of the page when other people who have A plus are, are down below and they've spent tons of money on their A plus content, but guess what? It just isn't converting as well because it wasn't the right kind of content to, to, to connect with people. And that's the core principle. It's getting below everything and understanding why. Yeah. Brad, share with us some of those principles for the best set of product pictures. Uh, oh, product pitches. So we have three core and <laughs> it was so funny. I was talking to my buddy who runs the detail page uh, the other day. I was like, these are the three that we use. He goes, oh, that's the exact same three that, I've, <laughs> that I use inside of Amazon that we talk to people about. So I, we came at it from different perspectives, but it's the right principle. So um, the first one, the way I would say is the first one is our product pictures. Um, so you got to show your product. It's got to be clean right? And show a, a clean version of your product. And the second one um, is uh, product feature images. That's probably the best, best way of uh, uh, saying it. So 
what are the features of your products in an image format that are better or that are that you should highlight, right? These typically involve infographics. Um, you know, you've seen pictures of a product with little, uh, like a little circle and says, hey, here's this gear, here's this mechanism, or this is five times better than whatever else. So it's like an infographic, one, two, or three versions of those infographic kind of pictures. Essentially, those are what the bullet points are, you know, the, the key selling benefits. You take those and you put them into an uh, infographic version so people just look, can see it on the pictures. And then you repeat it in the, in the key selling benefits below. So you have the product images, you got the product feature images of all the features, and then you have the lifestyle. Lifestyle is kind of a broad term, but the last one is like, what's the lifestyle images? So use, what is use cases almost use like case? That. What is the key emotional or life benefit of this product for somebody? Right. So I'm selling, you know, I'm selling dog food, and the last image is like someone with a super happy dog, right? Because the benefit of dog food is that someone's really happy or the dog's happy, right? Or I'm selling uh, hair rejuvenation, uh, hair growth, something. At the very end, I show someone on a date, like some guy on a date or a woman on a date with like gray hair, right? Like that's the emotional benefit. That's kind of the, that leans into the branding side, yeah. but that's more the, I call them lifestyle uh, shots, but it's not necessarily, you know, strictly lifestyle. It's more of that branded emotional benefit um, and life benefit of the product. So I have a very specific question for you when it comes to uh, images and when it comes to infographic type images. So it, it is, perfectly common in some of those infographic type images to have text in the image. Uh -huh. Except that Amazon algorithm picks up text in an image and it's suspensive. So tell us about some tips, how we can get around that. <laughs> I told you it was gonna be specific. Yeah, I, I actually, um, I don't know the best way of getting around it aside from you file the, if they might suspend it, try a new image uh, or, or, or call it out with Amazon. I mean, we've gotten around it. I've never been permanently restricted on anything like that. I mean, uh, we have, I, I asked this question because we, we with a, not one, but a few clients, we are getting ready to launch and we you create the listing and then you submit the images and say search suppressed. And then it says Amazon algorithm picked up text inside your image. Please remove it. But which image? Which was it? The first image? Main image, right? No, can't be the main image. Main yeah. image, like I said, main image needs to be the product. It should. It's a product image where this is what you're getting in the package, right? Like that's why those you can't do it. It's the ones later so down. What about uh, in this case, it was a kit with multiple pieces in it. So they just put number of pieces in the kit, but it yeah. obviously it's text. It can be done. Yeah. Um, that's, that's ticky tacky from Amazon if they did that. <laughs> um, but uh, you may not be able to do that. Most times we've done kits, you just lay it out uh, on the page or you show it and then show, show a bunch. And then the second and third, and fourth image uh, show the actual number of pieces and the details about the whole kit and everything. Okay. All right. So the lesson is on the main image, try to avoid, be clean. but on yeah. the other images, it's okay. Yep. Yep. The main image has to be as clean as possible. You know, follow the Amazon guidelines. I've seen people, you know, show like a model holding something before or a hand holding something up. I've seen Amazon catch it, Amazon not catch it. Right. Sometimes if they don't, you can get away with stuff, but um, uh, so you can try. But at the end of the day, like 
what Amazon's policies are. It's like, it's got to be a clean image on a white background of a product because they know that sells the best. Yeah. Um, and that's and that. Yeah. Because the, the hand's not coming with the package. The model's not coming with the product. Right. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. so, but I mean, dresses, you know, dresses and clothing obviously are different and people kind of accept that. So there's like little rule bending that Amazon does to some of their policies. So sometimes you can get away with stuff and you should try to do what you really want. And if you can't get it, then just go, then roll back to just clean images. Great. So this was great, Brad. I mean, I, I, uh, I mean, we, you and I can talk all day. I mean, this, this, <laughs> there is so much. Uh, so, so um, but here we're going to wrap up the business talk. Let's now talk about you a little bit. So tell us, you said Salt Lake City, that's where you live. And uh, I mentioned father of five. I don't know how you find time for all this stuff, but uh, tell us about where you grew up. So um, I grew up, I actually grew up here in Salt Lake City by the University of Utah, um, by the, the hospital. There's a, there's a big cancer hospital up here, Huntsman Cancer Institute. And um, wonderful place to grow up. I then, uh, let's see, how much do I want to divulge? I grew up here in Salt Lake, went to the University of Utah after high school. And then I actually got a film degree. So uh, I've been, I was... Early days, actually. Um, oh, fun, I guess a few fun facts. I won a couple of national um, uh, competitions in high school for for film. Uh, I for a three D animation I did. This was early days when like Pixar, Toy Story one just came out. Acting or making? So I made a three D animation that won this a couple of national awards and HBO one and a couple other ones. And then I made uh, one with acting with the whole group of my, my TV video class. Um, and uh, so I was kind of early into technology, but I was into the 3D side and doing, you know, Pixar-y kind of stuff. And I got a film degree from, from the University of Utah. Um, and I did, but it was with a lot, I love screenwriting and I love the 3D animation side of it. Um, and this was early days. Um of the 3D animation area and space. So again, and I think it was, I just love the new technology and the new stuff that you could do, right? Um, but after a couple of years, I worked in video games uh, and then I started my own company in games and uh, I didn't know a lot about business and how the whole world really worked. <laughs> and so uh, I came up, I grew up with a family uh, from some, polit um, I guess my grandfather, the politician, my dad was just kind of a business guy where, um, but uh, I didn't know a lot about business. And so I went to business school, got my MBA, and I worked for, I worked for Citigroup um, out in New York, which was awesome. Uh, I love, it, it was a really great group of folks, actually. I love the Citigroup folks there um, that I worked with. I was in uh, a couple of departments, including uh, marketing. But uh, then I, when I was finishing business school, it was either go back to Citigroup, which I was really tempted to do, or Amazon, this small, you know, company that started was starting to sell stuff online, um, was coming out of the woodwork. And I was just looking at the trajectory of what Amazon was was doing as a company. And I said, well, I think, you know, as an entrepreneur, you got to, you hit your your uh, wagon to something that's really growing. <laughs> and uh, from my career, I did, the, I was doing the same thing, looking at Amazon and saying, hey, there's cool innovation. There's cool things to do. And I actually got brought into Amazon to build a gamification platform inside of Seller Central. And we were basically a day before launching. And then uh, 
you know, some management above me made a change and it made me so upset <laughs> um, that we had built this whole gamification system and it would have still been there today. It was awesome. And what that means is we would have given awards to sellers for like reaching different thresholds and selling and, and it's, it's driving the right behaviors that we wanted through little badges, you know, almost like Delta Sky Miles, right? That's a gamification system. Yeah. Um, and that came from my gaming background. And so we built this whole system and then day before launching it, it got shifted. And so they said, well, you just know so much about Seller Central because I had to go around and learn it to build the system. We're actually going to put you uh, as the first business lead over the Seller Central platform, which we've never had before. And let's create, let's take this chaos of the Seller Central platform and make and streamline it a little bit. Um, and so I did some stuff. I, tr- I had a lot of visions and that we couldn't do, uh, but yeah, that's, and that. So, so what, what, what I want to find out is, because uh, I heard you mention your grandfather was a politician, but your dad was a business person. Yeah. Was he an entrepreneur or a business owner? He was um, more of a, uh, a little bit of both. So my grandfather's the last senator, um, uh, last Democratic senator that came out, um, or Democrat senator that came out of Utah back in 70. Um, 79, I think he, he ended up, um, or 78. Then um, my dad did a little bit of politics, but he um, he was mainly, he worked for the State Department because he grew up back East when my, my grandfather was a senator. Uh, but then he, you know, but so he knew international relations uh, with with foreign, foreign entities and governments. And so he went out and he was kind of a business guy helping other companies establish new processes overseas. He would go to India and Africa and things like that growing up. And then he, uh, but he also dabbled in some, you know, some, a little bit of lobbying uh, kind of political stuff of of grouping up teams and systems and companies here locally in Utah um, and help them. Sounds like he was a deal maker. Yeah, he kind of, yeah, a little bit. He was a deal maker, but not a very good deal maker. <laughs> but no, he, was, he was, no, he was great with people, um, and people loved him, and so he was able to, yeah, talk with a lot of folks. And so, what do you? I mean, uh, I, you know, you as you were talking about, so you were in film, and then you went to business school, and then gamification, uh, well, game gaming company, right? And yeah. then uh, Amazon, what gamification? Focus and then Seller Central, like you kind of traveled around a little bit, so to speak, career-wise. Yeah. Uh, what was the driver in your like experimenting different things, looking for a place? So one of the things I love. So I started with film, um, just because I love the I love the kind of impact that you know storytelling narrative can have um, for for folks. But then. Um, I, I moved into games because a lot of my skill set was in games. And I started falling in love with games uh, of how they they did things. But really, if you think about it, games, at least in my, in my perspective, when I was in games, is about building a system and like a world that was just fun and interactive, right? So what is this world that you're building? What is this system you're building? And again, it's taking chaos of ideas and kind of putting them into one idea that would be a game that would be fun. Um, and so then moving into other areas, I realized that this is really applicable in other areas of business uh, because really what we've done, you know, with, with everything I've done over the last eight years with product labs is there's this chaos of selling and we need, and then being a good manager and steward over people's businesses, 
we needed to create a whole system um, and a, con a concise system where we could diagnose issues, solve issues, and grow sales, and then help our customers, you know, see new perspectives as well, right? So um, it was a whole system was like, well, I can't do all of this, right? I can only scale so much. So what is a system that I could create and build and work on that was really sophisticated to be able to handle, you know, millions and millions in sales for, um, you know, hundreds of clients. So, so is this your product labs? Is this your final stop? You found your home or you, you, you there is something else you're cooking or uh, aspiring for? There will always be new stuff. One of the, one of the most, um, one of the most fun parts of games is I did more innovative stuff in game development than I've done anywhere. Technologically, any at Amazon, any big company, like, when I look at the systems that we want to build at Amazon, I'm like, this is simple, guys. Why can't we do this faster, right? Yeah. And it, the reason they couldn't do it faster is because they were building at such big scale. But we had done, I had done some super advanced AI algorithms and machine learning systems early days in video games. We built an automated uh, videographer for Disney um, for their theme parks where you would go in and like they would have, we, we'd have like eight different cameras and we could tell where the character, where the kid was when he came in and he saw Mickey and we could tell when he smiled and when he hugged him. And then we took the whole thing and put it into a video of like, here's like your highlight video of, go of your visit with Mickey, right? Like that was so advanced. And remember Disney saying they came to us because they found that, that game development companies were so, uh, were always a step ahead of everyone else in terms of like how they could develop and, and the unique kind of stuff that they could develop. So there's some of that that is always fun, right? Of, <laughs> of like, what's the latest technology innovation? Um, this product lab stuff is super, we're having so much fun actually because the seller space is fun, been watching it. It was early days of just the land grab and now it turns into real estate development, right? So like how are all these brands building and growing their real estate inside of Amazon? And that's really fun because we're getting more and more sophisticated every step of the way. And we don't, we don't rely on the latest hack, right? There's always hacks and they're, sure. they're great to look at and they're great to do sometimes, but we, but we always roll it back to like, what's the core foundation of the fun stuff or the, the, the stuff we can put in place that will be in place for the next 10, 15 years, right? And so we're developing methods and ideas around that, which is super fun. And that's, and that's exciting. Um, but like I said, you know, when, when I'm all done with this, I'm sure there's going to be fun, innovative stuff like I used to do with the, with the video game side. Yeah. <laughs> This was great, uh, Brad. So tell us about uh, how people can reach you. Give us your contact. Yeah. Yep. Uh, you can reach out to me or my team. Um, uh, our team, you can reach out to uh, services at productlabs.ai or myself at brad at productlabs.ai. Um, and uh, the reason I mentioned my team is they're usually faster to respond than I am. Uh, <laughs> to to some stuff, but happy to help people out and help them understand Amazon and even just chat about um, what's the future of Amazon. We've talked with talked with plenty of private equity companies and big investors of uh, all sorts of stuff uh, to understand this this space, which is which is an exciting space to be in. Yeah. Great, thank you, Brad. This was uh, great. So we'll put your information with your contact information on our website, and we'll go out to all the podcast platforms with your episode. So I'm sure you'll hear from people, uh, not necessarily maybe for firing. <laughs>
<laughs> but to pick your brains because uh, yeah. you shared very valuable information. Uh, Great. Thank, thank you. Thank you for, uh, for being a guest today. Nick, thank you for having me. This is a pleasure. You're, it, this is a fun, fun podcast you do. I love it. Thank you. And uh, that brings us to the end of another episode. And I'll see you on the next one. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. Be sure and subscribe, rate, and review our show. And be sure and share an episode with a friend. And thank you so much for being with us today. We'll see you next week here on Amazon Legends.